This is a final sermon in a series of sermons we've done on Fort Street's values, love, justice, and inclusion. And uh, if you haven't listened to those sermons, uh, I'd encourage you to go back on our YouTube page. You can check those out. Um, Last week, Pastor Sarah talked about justice as an embodied act, something we do when we have our hands and feet on the ground. We're in a space. Uh, In the first week, I talked about love and sort of tried to give us a way forward for loving those who are unlovable in our eyes. Perhaps uh, the way that we do that is by finding one thing that we can love and starting there. And this morning, we're going to talk about inclusion. Our text comes to us from Ezra chapter 4. Listen now for a word from God. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house for our God, but we alone will build for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius of Persia. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for time set aside to worship. We ask that whatever we might hear this morning would come from you and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. So before the Babylonian exile, Jerusalem was quite the place. And I I actually hear it still is quite the place. Has anyone been to Jerusalem? Anyone? Yeah. I feel like that should be a church trip that we need to do. I don't know who needs to know that in here, but it seems like we should all take a giant church field trip to Jerusalem one day. (laughs) Be fun. But it was a great place, and it still is, and it's wonderful. And King Saul, King David, King Solomon, they all found some form of success in growing the kingdom of Israel. And so making the holy city of Jerusalem even bigger and better than it had been. But not long after Solomon's death, with no clear or agreed-upon succession plan, the kingdom began to crumble. There was fighting over power, over money, resources, etc. They were fighting over everything, really. And then, suddenly, the people were in exile. After 70 years of being in exile, the Persians came along, and they conquered the conquerors, the Babylonians. And the Persians were an empire, like all the other empires, but they were somewhat unlike the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians divided, conquered, and enslaved people, and the Persians definitely did conquering as well, and they may have divided 
peoples and they enslaved others as well. The Persians did all of this, but they were also a little bit different, we're told, because they released and commanded conquered peoples to return to their homelands to rebuild and reconstruct what had once been their ancestors' former lives. One of these people coming out of the Babylonian exile, released by the gracious King Cyrus, is a guy named Nehemiah, who was once cupbearer to the king. He's a Judean who was likely born into captivity and now carries on his parents' and grandparents' dreams of one day returning to Jerusalem, or what remains of it at that point, and seeing the holy city for the first time. He wants to go back home like all of his other people. He wants to go back and worship in the temple to do what had always been done in that spiritual place. You can imagine how excited he might be and all the people with him as they go to reestablish the holy city to rebuild the temple and its walls, and to worship once again like their parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents used to worship. They want to experience what they've only heard about in stories. And everything, they think, is going to be just like it used to be back in the good old days. And they are going to make it that way themselves. However, just as Nehemiah begins to lead the charge to rebuild the city and the temple, just as their religious organization, the temple, is beginning this kind of rebirth and revitalization, a revival, we might say, as all of that is happening according to their dreams and their plans and the commands of this king, a new group of people arrive. More exiles recently released by the Persian Empire. And they're Israelites, technically, cousins of the Judeans. But they were the kind of Israelites that the Judeans often referred to as Samaritans, people who worshiped the same God and had been doing so for centuries. This should be great, right? They're rebuilding the temple reestablishing worship, building city walls, could use all the help you can get. It's just one problem, though. The Judeans and Samaritans had been feuding with each other because of the Judeans' thought that there should be one temple in the whole world. And the Samaritans, who lived sometimes weeks away from this temple in Jerusalem, thought that this was somewhat impractical. And so they had established a place of worship just a little closer to home, so that they could worship God. But when they did this, they effectively created two temples in the eyes of the Judeans, and so they committed a kind of unforgivable sin, if you will, a kind of heresy. The Samaritans are no longer in the family, the Judeans said. They're outcasts. They're shunned. They're an unclean people to be avoided and ignored until they get their act together and repent. It's not really until Jesus that we see these cultural biases challenged directly in the Gospels. This is all why the author of Ezra refers to the outsiders who approach as the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. 
There is a deep and historical feud between these people. But here they are. They've arrived back in Jerusalem, their spiritual home, these Samaritans, and they see their relatives, their kin, the Judeans, and they're excited. They see them worshiping in the temple again, and they realize, these adversaries and these outsiders, remember, they realize that they share a common dream together, and they want to help rebuild the temple in the city too. And because they want to rebuild these things, they also want to help rebuild the nation. They want to unify. Let us build together, they say to Nehemiah and the people entrusted to help him. Let us create a new spiritual home that includes all of us. It's a beautiful attempt at reunifying God's people by them showing up, I think, They're just saying that, hey, we're willing to put away the past, which when you think about it, it isn't even really their past as they're coming out of exile and rebuilding literally from the ground up. That's their grandparents and their parents and their great-grandparents' past. Ursula Le Guin once said that wrong that cannot be repaired must be transcended. And here I think The Samaritans are coming home and recognizing that they likely can't repair the wrongs of this past that they have inherited between these two groups. But they are reaching out and asking the people if they can help build together. Asking to join along here then is a kind of transcendent and divine act. Can we help you? Can I help you? It's like it's coming out of the mouth of God. You know, I'll never forget showing up to my first couple of uh, family reunions on my stepfather's side of the family. And I'll never forget because it was, it was awkward for a number of reasons. One, uh, I didn't know anyone there since it really wasn't my family yet. Uh, number two, no one knew me either. Three, I was the only one there with red hair and freckles. So I say I'll never forget because I I felt so out of place and and I wasn't ready to try to explain to people in the family uh, whose family I belong to, where my red hair came from. I I just wasn't ready to engage with that. I mean, I, I think that's tough for anyone at any age to do, but at seven years old, it was nearly impossible. Mostly I've forgotten about all of that awkwardness and newness, though, the difficulty of joining a new family or new community. I've forgotten all of that, but I'll never forget what my new grandma did during my very first family reunion. I think she spotted me in the crowds of people, and my stepfather has a huge, huge family. It's a wonder, then, that there's not one other ginger in the entire collection of them. But I'll never forget what my new grandma did. I think she saw me trying to answer all these questions to all these people, trying so hard to say, yes, my red hair came from this, and I belong to this person like this, and on and on and on, that she just left. She went down to the store, and she bought some red hair dye, and she dyed her hair red that afternoon.
sorry. <laughs> I practiced this like 12 times, so I wouldn't. <laughs> and when I asked her why at dinner that night, she told me she loved me. And she said, I want everyone to know you're my grandson. Even though her red hair didn't look anything like my red hair. (laughs) Sorry. And she said, and I love you, and you belong to me. She still dyes her hair red sometimes. And I hope we've all known a person or a community that has welcomed us in this way. I'm afraid, though, that in America, in 2022, it's not always the case. As we know, religious organizations like churches are notorious for excluding others for any number of reasons. And a more depraved pastor might tell you that this is God's way, exclusion, because the Bible says so, right? But many of us have known the pain of that way of thinking, the pain of that theology. I don't need to repeat any of the stories. The reputation of the church, unfortunately, precedes us. And it goes something like, we don't like outsiders or anyone with any perceivable difference. Perhaps the worst thing we do, though, in the church, especially in 2022, is something that's rarely talked about. It's not necessarily that we hate the outsider. It's not necessarily that we reject them, though we do continue to do those things. But actually, what we're doing now is we are commodifying people for our own benefit. We aren't concerned with the names or the lives of the newcomers, the visitors to our church. We don't even care to ask who they are so long as the pastor has met them or someone from the welcoming team. We only want to know if they will fill our membership roles, pay our bills, join our choirs, and make us feel like we're not on the way down. Are they valuable to us or not? Will they come help us do the thing that we've always been doing, or will they just stay out of our way? That's the new form of exclusion. You know, Nehemiah seems to be okay with these people joining, maybe a little bit on the fence, but he seems to be for allowing the people to join in the building of the temple and the city, but those with him say no. They say no to the Samaritans. They say, you aren't welcome here yet. You can come pay tribute and worship with your offerings, and we'll take your money, but you cannot help us rebuild. If you have gifts, great. If you have value to add, great. If not, don't ask for influence, don't ask for power, don't ask to make decisions, don't ask for anything. Just leave everything that you have at the altar there and then, shoo, go. We have other things to do. But not all the people with Nehemiah felt this way. Some of them believed in Nehemiah's vision for reconstruction. Some of them had an even grander vision for what the temple could be. And it was this loud, 
but small minority of creative people that had risen up in response to some of the exclusion and bigotry being displayed by those leading the rebuilding of the temple. And one of them was a poet inspired by God. And this poet was claiming to write as the prophet Isaiah, but we know now he or she was not the prophet Isaiah. They wrote this beautiful, beautiful poem, perhaps in response to this decision to exclude an entire group of people in the reconstruction process. And I, I just want to read it to you. This is Isaiah 56. The Lord says, don't let the immigrant who is joined with the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from the people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. The Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, choose what I desire and remain loyal to my covenant in my temple and courts, I will give them a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an enduring name that won't be removed. The immigrants who have joined me, serving me and loving my name, becoming my servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath without making it impure, and those who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. And I will bring them joy in my house of prayer. And I will accept their entirely burned offerings and sacrifices on my altar, and my house will be known as a house of prayer for all people, says the Lord God, who gathers Israel's outcasts. I will gather still others to those I have already gathered. Amen. This divine vision of inclusion speaks for itself, I think. The poet is suggesting everyone belongs in God's house because everyone is made in the divine image. The poet is also suggesting to the readers of this at the time that the temple ought to be rebuilt and reconstructed with that conviction in mind. God, the poet tells us, is an ever-gathering God and so our places of worship should reflect that. I read a tweet the other day that said, everyone is welcome is drastically different from we built this with you in mind. Let me say that again. Everyone is welcome is drastically different from we built this with you in mind person went on to say, people don't want to go where they are merely tolerated. They want to go where they are included. And I just, I love that. That to me was the sermon. I should have just read the tweet and walked off, you know. But so many churches are not great at doing that, though. As we said, they're better at commodifying their neighbor better at caring more about the preserving of dying institutions than love, service, walking alongside others. All are welcome, these churches say, until you're not. Nehemiah fails to reestablish the city and the temple, and Ezra comes along a little bit later, and he fails with him. 
In fact, Nehemiah's story ends with him in Job-like or Jonah-like fashion, bemoaning his failures, his existence, and the loss of all the possibilities. But it's not his fault, is it? He can't make the people change their mind. They did whatever they were going to do, and that's who they were. They made enemies of those who wanted to be friends. They excluded those who should have been included. And they continued to build the temple of old and not the new temple God was calling them to build. They would only tolerate those they should have welcomed and included. One commentator said that they were too narrow-minded and focused on the past and making sure that things went back exactly to the way they were, that they totally missed the point. And so, kind of ruined it for everybody. And the worst part is, they don't seem to care. Because in their minds, it's how it ought to be. In the end, we learn that they could have used all the help available, but their dreams for their religious organization are thwarted and delayed by their own people who are clinging to the past, holding on to what has already passed away, and they're missing those gathered with them to help right here and right now. I've heard it said that teamwork makes the dream work. But I actually say that a divine vision of inclusion also makes the dream work. Fort Street family, may we remember the feelings and the value of inclusion in our own lives as we try to revitalize this church. As we seek to live into a new vision and achieve a new mission and fully embody these values of love, justice, and inclusion, I pray that we would remember how we felt when we've been both included and excluded. And may we not, as we enter this new time of being the church, may we not regress back to our former ways of silos, of fighting, not communicating, insisting on our own ways, and distracting from the missions, goals, and values by chasing our own pet projects. May we be a people who remember that the way of God is always the way of opening our hearts to include and gather more and more and more than we could ever, ever imagine. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for your word. And Lord, may we learn from one of its many lessons. In Jesus' name, amen.